you're listening to a short cast from the London School of Economics and Political Science, shaping the post-COVID world series, a digested version of our live online public events series. This event was recorded on 1st March 2021. A full version is available to download via the LSE website or from your usual podcast provider. Good afternoon, everybody. My name's Tim Besley, a member of the economics department here at the LSE. And I'm delighted to welcome you to this first uh, event of the LSE Festival, where we're going to be discussing Manu Shafiq's new book called What We Owe to Each Other, A New Social Contract. And with, first of all, me asking Manoush a few questions about the content of her book, and then bringing in two distinguished panelists to debate the very important themes in the book. Manoush, of course, needs very little introduction, particularly in the LSE community, but she is, of course, director of LSE, and many of you will will know that she has held, prior to that, a a number of very important policy positions at the World Bank, the DFID, IMF, and Bank of England. As I mentioned, we have two panelists, President Juan Manuel Santos, who was president of Colombia from 2010 to 2018, and also winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. We will also be joined by Amartya Sen, who's Lamont University professor at Harvard, and also a Nobel laureate, but in his case in economics, and a past member of the economics department here at the LSE. So without further delay, I'll turn to the main proceedings and start with you, Manish, to begin by unpacking for the audience the concept of a social contract. And perhaps you can tell us a little bit just where it connects to LSD's history. By the social contract, I mean the norms and rules that govern how we live together and define what we owe each other in society. For example, are children raised at home by mothers or grandparents, or does the state provide childcare services? In most traditional societies, what we owe each other in a society tends to be predominantly delivered by families and communities. In more modern societies, the state and the market play a bigger role. But what's true across all societies is that people are expected to contribute to the common good when they're adults in exchange for being looked after when they're young or when they're old or unable to support themselves. Now, this concept in the social contract has a long tradition at the LSE where Thinking about the relationship between the economy and society has a very long history, starting with the founders of the school, the Fabians, who created the LSE in 1895. And of course, the most famous product of that was the Beveridge Report, which was actually written by one of my predecessors as director of LSE and published in 1942. And it fundamentally changed the social contract in the UK and redefined what citizens could expect from each other, including the creation of the National Health Service, as well as a sort of consistent structure around unemployment and pensions protection. I think the second iteration of the social contract at the LSE came from Frederick Hayek, who was a professor at the school, another distinguished Nobel laureate, who published The Road to Serfdom, which was a reaction to the interventionist state proposed by Beveridge, which he thought risked taking us down the path of totalitarianism. Hayek, of course, laid the foundations for classic economic liberalism. The third iteration of the social contract that came out of the LSE 
was the so-called third way, which tried to find somewhere in between the interventionist state of beverage and the laissez-faire market capitalism of Hayek. Another one of my predecessors, Anthony Gibbons, who was director of the school from 1997 to 2003, published a book entitled The Third Way in 1998, which reflected lots of work being done at the LSE about how you can make a market economy more socially compassionate and responsible. And those views were embraced by third way politicians around the world, including Bill Clinton in the US, Tony Blair in the UK, Lula in Brazil, Gerhard Schroeder in Germany, uh, and Thabo and Becky in South Africa. And I think Juan Manuel was also very actively involved in, in the third way of thinking. But the third way lost an enormous amount of credibility after the financial crisis in 2008, where its support diminished enormously as centrists were increasingly being replaced by populists around the world. And perhaps the culmination of that collapse of support for the third way happened in 2016, when we saw Trump being elected, Brexit, and the rise of populist politicians across the world. And in many ways, that was the motivation and context in which I started thinking about this book. Very interesting. So listening to that, could you tell us a little bit about how you see the building of a welfare state in particular, how that fits into the idea of a social economy? Is that the same thing or is there something distinctively different about thinking of the role of the state through the lens of a social contract than the traditional view of the welfare state cradle to grave and all of that? The social contract reflects all the ways that we organize things that we need delivered collectively. But that can be through many mechanisms, through our family through our community, through our employer, or through the state. The welfare state is just one way of delivering collective goods. Childcare is a very good example. It can be done by the family. It can be done by the state. So there are many possible mechanisms. The welfare state is, is one very important one, which has become more prominent over the years. There's a misconception that the welfare state is primarily about redistributing income from the rich to the poor. And what my colleague Nick Barr at LSE calls the Robin Hood function. But the main purpose of the welfare state is actually to redistribute income across our own lives, what's sometimes called the piggy bank function. So if you think about a clever child, a clever child can't go to a bank and say to the bank, I'm clever. I'd like to take a loan for you to fund my education and I'll pay you when I'm an adult. It's just not feasible. Instead, the state pays for that child's education with the expectation that when that child grows up, they will earn income, pay taxes, and then that will finance others to benefit from education. And so that intertemporal role of the welfare state in spreading income and managing risks across our own lives is actually the primary function of the welfare state and a key part of the social contract. So you provided a very eloquent account of how the social contract works, but I'm guessing you wouldn't have written the book if you hadn't thought that there were some issues and problems and challenges. What, what do you see as the, the issues? Would you even go as far as to say that the social contract is broken or is that too strong a term to use? I would say that, Tim. I would say the social contract is broken. If I describe the social contract as it was until the late 20th century, it was designed for a world in which families would have one sole male breadwinner. It was presumed that women would take care of the young and the old. 
there was a presumption that people would stay married until they died and they would give birth to children only when they were married and they would have steady employment with very few employers over a career and that the skills that they got at school between the age of six-ish to 22-ish would be enough for a lifetime and that most people would only live a few years after they'd retired. If they needed support when they were old, that would be provided by families. And as I describe that social contract, which underpins the way most of our societies are still organized, you're probably thinking that has nothing to do with the society that I live in. In fact, today, half of women are employed in the labor market globally, and that trend is only going up. In most advanced economies, a third to half of marriages end in divorce. In most developing countries, the rates of divorce are going up. A growing proportion of children are being born outside of marriage. The average worker now has more jobs over the course of a lifetime and is much less connected to their employer, and technology will increase that. And while in many developing countries, they're still transitioning to get more workers employed in the formal sector, we're seeing informality increasingly in the labor markets in many advanced economies with precarious work with very few benefits. And so the social contract which we have now is very irrelevant to the conditions in our societies. I think if I had to pinpoint what broke our social contract, I think there's two main drivers. One is the changing role of women. And so our entire system was premised on women taking care of the young and the old. And now that's very difficult because most women are working. And second, the role of technology and how technology has changed work and changed the relationship that most of us have to our employers. And that has been very fundamental. I think the last thing I'd say is just looking forward, there are two other huge factors that are threatening the social contract. One is aging and what that will do to the needs for care going forward. And second is climate change and how that affects the sustainability of our economies and our societies and our intergenerational social contract. You were writing this book as the pandemic was unfolding. Does the experience of the pandemic, does that contribute positively or or negatively to the social contract? What I think all of us have felt in this last year is that the pandemic just reveals the failings of our social contract even more. Who suffered the most? The people who were in precarious work, the poor, women. And what it showed is that those fragilities in our social contract were even more apparent. I often think of COVID as the great revealer. It revealed the frailties in our social contract. We sort of need to turn now, I suppose, to the concrete policy recommendations that that come out of your analysis. Perhaps you could just give one or two concrete examples of things that you would recommend to fix the broken social contract as you see it. So I'll give you an example from education. Society has made huge progress in getting most children into primary and secondary school, and most countries invest most of their resources in that area. But going forward, we know that we have huge inequalities in terms of educational outcomes and life prospects. And we also know that young people today are going to have much longer careers, maybe spanning 40, 50 years, because they will live much longer. Research shows from around the world that intervention very early, before children ever get to school, before the age of three, has huge consequences. For example, a study in Jamaica showed that children who were visited by a community health care worker as infants once a week and the parents given advice on things like nutrition and play and mental stimulation of their children, those kids 
20 years later, were earning 42% more. And you can find similar research in places like Chicago and other, other, other countries. What it tells us is that that early intervention, if families are supported before children get to school, that brain development of that child will have huge consequences for how much they can benefit from school and how much they will learn and earn over the course of their lives. Similarly, because careers will be longer, the idea that you don't fund education in adulthood is highly foolish. What I would argue is a better social contract would invest more in the early years where the possibilities to equalize opportunity for children are greatest and more in adult education where longer careers and technological change will mean that reskilling throughout life will be essential. Thank you. I think it's time now to perhaps broaden out the, the conversation a little bit and bring in our two panelists. Perhaps I could start with, with you, Amartya. Share with us a few of your thoughts about how the idea of a social contract fits into your framework for thinking about justice and what a good society and economy would look like. Firstly, I think both Vinusha's uh, vocals was wonderfully illuminating in making us understand the extent of interdependences that we see in the world and how we can be in a much better position with the help of each person helping the other under a contract thing. Where I do have questions to ask without in any way compromising the understanding that I get from her work. You see, I think there are three things. One is there are respects in which we are so interdependent that each person can do more for others than, other, than you can do for yourself in an isolated world. So the first point is interdependent. The second point is a mutuality of interdependent, that I do something for you, you do something for me, and that together works out much better. That's the basis of a contractual understanding. So far, all this is Hobbes and the neutral course, but in a, in a much more total way. Then comes the final question, namely a contract. I will do it provided you do it, and you tell me you will do it provided I do it. Now, there is a range of questions that people have been raising over the last thousands of years, going back before Hobbes, as to whether that's the right way of thinking about it. And therefore, the argument is that if there are good things you can do for others, which you think are good, and they have a similar reason to think that, you should be able to do them without the contract. So what goes wrong with the Rousseauian, Hobbesian ad of the contract to the mutuality and the mutual interdependence, what we had already arrived at. Now, the question that arises is whether in a society that does need this mutuality, whether it's best done in terms of a rhetoric that goes in terms, if I do that, will you do that this for me? Mm. And this has had a huge hold in, I think, Western thinking. Now, what I want to know, really, is how, what Minutius' thinking on this is. I think that the contractual language works better when you're talking about market-based and welfare state solutions. 
it becomes a lot more fraught when you're thinking about families and communities. And I understand why that language is problematic. On the other hand, I guess I would say that in some domains, it's not talking about it in a very transparent language of contract and social contract. Hides a lot of sins. I mean, I'll give you the example, which I know Amartya has written extensively on, is the division of labor in the household, for example. Now, we don't talk about it as a contract. If you are in a household where you're all talking about the contracts that you have to each other, I think it would be a horrible household to live in. (laughs) Um, But on the other hand, if you look at the time use studies, the fact is that women do two hours of unpaid work on average more than men. And that has huge consequences for their employment prospects, for their income prospects, and for their old age. So I guess what I'd say is we probably shouldn't use contractual language in our personal lives. But I think from a public policy point of view, sometimes you have to look at it using that framework. I think it would be a good moment to bring in President Santos. I wonder whether, given your vast experience in political life and in public life, How useful do you find the idea of a social contract as a way of defining the way you would interact with citizens as a political leader? Minush, thank you, because you have helped me a lot in my present circumstances. We are having elections next year. And one of the problems we have in Colombia is that there are many candidates, and they all come to me because I'm retired, to seek uh, new ideas And uh, what I do is, look, read this book. You have all the ideas, the interesting ideas and relevant ideas of how to build a better future. I would say that there's a necessary complement to the book in terms of speaking about a social contract and defining a social contract as the relations between individuals. We need a new social contract, how to relate each other as nations, And I think this pandemic has made us see the problems more clearly. And that's one of the problems. The multilateralism, uh, the institutions, they all need to have a new blood and new ideas. You mentioned something in the book, Minush, which is very important. How should we redefine concepts like progress? Because among nations... And within nations, for example, and you mentioned it, GDP is the indicator that defines success. Well, Professor Sen, a long time ago, taught us that that is not the most important way to measure progress. He taught me poverty is not how much you earn. Poverty is multidimensional. And I, inspired by Professor Sen, applied that in my country with tremendous success. And so I think that there's an opportunity today around the concept of social contract and redefining what we mean by progress and bringing societies together to agree on that will be a tremendous political engine and will allow us to at least mitigate uh, this 